0: This isn't a transaction in which it's a zero-sum transaction. They see it as we need to be able to provide value and really contribute the asset that the municipality wants to do and the municipal partner in our project as well in that they're giving us the funds so that we're able to take this project and take it live. And so that's the side of it that I think it's important to kind of keep in mind is that it's not always a two-party transaction. It sometimes is a three-party transaction and that it's just as important to understand what is the sort of the public value that's derived. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors,
1: a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four. And on today's show, we have on Chow Wan. Chow is the managing director of Hageman Capital Group. Hageman Capital is a purchaser of single-site, developer-backed TIF bonds. And if you're like me, you're probably asking, what in the world is a TIF? Well, in today's episode, we're going to dig into all aspects of what a TIF is and the purpose it provides in a real estate development process. All right, Chow, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate you having me here today.
1: Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream?
0: (laughs) It's got to be strawberry. I'm not sure why, but as a kid, I always liked strawberry flavored anything. And so uh, strawberry ice cream is just kind of stuck. I always have some at home.
1: Okay. Now, are you a bowl or a cone guy?
0: So I think there's a right way to answer the question, (laughs) but there's honestly the, the honest way of answering the question. I'm probably a cone guy, but Frankly, my favorite way to eat ice cream is right out of the container. So,
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say that when you said there's probably a politically right way to say this, but i just go straight in for it. That's right. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today?
0: Yeah. So my name is Xiao Yuan. I am the managing director of Hageman Capital, which is a new entity created by Hageman Group late 2020. And so Hageman Group, not a lot of folks know who we are, but we are a a family office that primarily invests in multifamily real estate around central Indiana and in the Midwest. And so the family office is started by the sale of C in Remington, Indiana, which gave us a lot of to put to work. And so in 2013, we started really heavily investing in real And so the Hageman Capital side of it is ultimately a TIF monetization arm of Hageman. And so because of the real estate expertise we have in just traditional commercial real estate, we found that it made sense to also look into being investors in tax increment financing bonds, which is a pretty common incentive in multifamily deals that we see around Indiana. So traditionally, back in the day, a municipality would issue a tax increment financing bond, sell the bonds to the public market, and then essentially write developers a check but those days are kind of gone, in which municipalities are not really willing to back the bonds with their own credit, take it to market and sell it. And so developers are oftentimes having to find a way to monetize it. And so we found that there was a lot of opportunities in the space. We found that with TIFF, most real estate developers understand property taxes, but you sort of package it within a bond vehicle and within sort of a capital markets execution. I think that's kind of the side of it that we bring a lot of value to. So ultimately, what we do and what I do is I lead Hageman Capital. Our job is really to monetize developer-backed tax increment financing bonds for developers.
1: That's awesome. I want to get into tips because this is a totally new subject area for me. So I'm way over my ski tips here just before we get this conversation going. So you're going to have to help educate me. But before we get there, Hageman Capital Group, you mentioned a deep expertise in real estate. Can you talk to us a little bit about your real estate portfolio and what that looks like today?
0: Sure. Yeah. So predominantly we own multifamily apartment assets, right? And so our model has been kind of is from the ground up. And so we like to invest in sort of assets that we can feel and that we can that we can see that we can touch. And so a lot of our assets have been based out of kind of the Indianapolis area or the greater Indianapolis area. So a lot of our portfolio consists of kind of your your traditional mixed-use, four-story, multifamily buildings. We also own a couple of retail assets as well. And when we first started Hageman Group, we were an investor in a couple of student housing projects that we have since sold. And then really predominantly our assets have been in Indiana, but we do have a few assets in Kansas City, St. Louis. We've done a project in Cincinnati as well. A couple in Georgia as well, and one out in North Carolina. We're generally pretty disciplined in the way that we invest in real estate and that we invest in kind of assets that we really understand. And so, multifamily to us has always been just kind of the arena that we've deployed capital into. So, really, since 2013, I mean, we've probably owned about close to $400 million in commercial real estate. And so, most of that has projects. My journey to prior to Hageman, I was in capital markets for a middle market bank. And my focus has primarily been in high yield municipal bonds. So TIF really falls into that category of being a high yield municipal bond product. And so really, there's not a lot of folks in the market or in general that know bonds, specifically high yield bonds. It just seems kind of like an obscure subject and it really is. And then also real estate as well. And so you kind of marry those two things together and you get somebody that is maybe good at one or two things, but generally can't do too much outside of that. So <laughs> that's how I joined Hageman was back in 2020 to lead Hageman Capital as the office was looking to sort of expand into other investments, chasing yield in, in a really sort of a volatile interest rate environment.
1: Yeah. You mentioned most of your assets were ground up. Did that just kind of mean like the foundation of it is real estate, or did you have, did Hageman have a ton of experience in developments? And that's kind of how you got into TIFFs.
0: Yes. So from the ground up, really, it's kind of the same that this is a, the Hageman family is an agricultural family. So Hageman, along with his cousin, started a company up in Remington and called Remington Seeds. And so the family has a farming background. So farmers, everything they do, it's sort of, it's tangible. They see their work product really daily, right? And what they do is extremely impactful and the value they create is very obvious, right? And so it kind of felt that same way about real estate as well. And so that's kind of where that model really came from was just the sense of, we are investing in products that we can feel, we can see, we can touch. And that really kind of came from the ground up. So it's a kitschy saying, but it really makes sense to everything that we do.
1: Yeah, assets you can touch, feel, see, and are inflation protected, I guess, (laughs) with agriculture and real estate there. All right, let's go into TIFFs now. So you mentioned what they were previously, but let's start at the 101 level for me here. What is a TIFF? What's the explanation of it? And we'll go from there.
0: Sure, so tax increment financing is a moniker in which, so, so I always like to use this anecdote because I think it's easy to understand. Let's say that there's a piece of dirt in your hometown that has really just sat vacant and it's undeveloped. So the municipality is collecting taxes from land, which really isn't a lot. Unimproved land is not going to generate a lot of tax revenue. But if somebody were to build, let's say, a 200-unit apartment complex on that land, the improved value would be worth a lot. And the improved taxes... Would be more than what the taxes would be currently, sort of vacant piece of land, right? So, in order to incentivize a developer to put a 200 unit apartment, let's say, on that land that maybe wasn't developed, a municipality can do is can allow the developers to capture the future increment taxes. And the increment in this case is defined as the land value versus what the developed apartment values would be, and that's the increment. So what the developer would do is capture those tax increments for a period of time and essentially borrow money against that increment, that cash flow over time. So unimproved land, not a lot of taxes, improved land with 200 units, a lot of taxes, that delta of those taxes is considered the increment. And the financing side of it is you are leveraging against that cash flow
1: over time. So let me make sure I understand it then. All right, we've got a simple property tax of 10%. We've got an unimproved land that is, let's call it $1,000. So the tax is a hundred bucks. If we put a 200 unit complex on it, now the improved value would be a million dollars. And if we take the same 10% tax rate, now we're talking about $100,000. A TIF would say, hey, over the course of five years, you've just improved that value $500,000. So we wrap that into a securitized product, essentially.
0: Yeah. Taxes that you would pay. So the $100 in taxes versus the $100,000 in taxes, the difference between that could essentially be securitized and monetized. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: And then where do you all come into the equation? Do you help securitize it and sell it off? Where do you come into it?
0: Yeah. So we're a pure investor in the sense in that, say, a developer is allowed to capture a TIF, let's say, for 25 years. What we would do essentially buy that cash flow from the developer and write a check up front to the developer. And typically, this money is used as equity, and that's kind of what a lot of lenders see it as well: is that it's money coming in first. So, in your example, we're taking that hundred thousand dollars over the next twenty-five years. We're present valuing that back, and we're writing a check on them. Gotcha. And then the
1: developer will give you cash flow streams for the next twenty-five years off of that.
0: Correct. Yeah, it's you can think of it that way, right? So they would ultimately pay taxes to the municipality. But what the municipality is allowing you to do is really capture that the taxes that they may have otherwise not been able to capture. So that $100,000 will normally go to the municipality. But because of tax increment financing and because this is a municipal incentive, the municipality allows you to kind of capture that increment as the investor.
1: So I live here in Nashville. I guess first question I'm, I I assumed I know the answer to this but I don't want to assume anything. Is this only local to Indiana and Indianapolis or do all municipalities across the country do this kind of financing?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say all, but it's a pretty powerful municipal tool to sort of encourage economic development. So, I would say most it has been prominent and I think especially in the past 15-20 years where development in the United States have really boomed, it's been a major tool. So, Especially where we are in Indiana, I would say a significant amount of real estate development projects have some incentives simply because the market may not be able to support the product without the incentives. And so states like Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, really just the surrounding states here are all very heavy in TIF. But nationally, TIF legislations vary from state to state. But I would say the majority of states have some form of TIF legislation.
1: Gotcha. So... When I read the headlines that, and this is just a hypothetical example, Oracle's moving to Nashville, they're going to build a big campus, they're going to bring 8,000 jobs. I'm assuming there's some tax incentives alongside of that to entice Oracle to move to Nashville versus New York, Austin, Indianapolis, et cetera. And in those tax incentives, it typically they structure like a 10-year no property tax if you move your headquarters here and build on it. Is that essentially what the municipality is doing is just writing a TIFF around that?
0: You can give it that way. TIFF is a little bit different in that what TIF has been is, it hasn't really just been on a single project. It could be on multiple projects in which the municipality increment taxes for multiple projects and then trying to monetize or trying to securitize those cash flows and provide sort of an upfront cash, right? That's traditionally been done, but in our sort of a developer back model in which... It's really just kind of a fancy way of saying this is a single site TIF, right? It's a TIF on a single project. That's where a developer can kind of see it as this is just an abatement. It's similar in that if the developer did not sell the TIF bonds or the TIF note, they would be the ones collecting the cash from the TIF. So in that case, yes, it could be seen as an abatement. But I would say, I think in your example, those are sort of more really just traditional abatements, occupied piece of real estate they're not going to be really not generating income, right? As opposed to the developer is ultimately their goal is going to generate income from any piece of real estate they own.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. What kind of returns and cash flow are you looking at when you buy these TIF bonds from developers?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, I think it really depends on the project, depends on the location, depends on kind of how long the TIF is outstanding for. So ultimately, my rule of thumb has always been we are typically higher than a construction loan, but lower than a equity's preferred return. and that really has to do with sort of the risk profile that we're in. so ultimately, we are first dollars in along with the developer's equity, but given that we are taxes and we sort of do sit in that senior tax lien position, it's not quite as risky as the. An equity position, right? So, really, we think of it as not as safe as a, a sort of a traditional mortgage in the sense that our money is going in first, but we're certainly not equity in the nines and tens, right? So, really, kind of sit in between there. And the range really kind of depends on the type of project, the location, and ultimately how long the bonds are.
1: Got it. Got it. And then in the capital structure, do you sit below the debt or on
0: top of the debt? Typically, taxes would sit above the debt in the capital structure, just simply because you know, if you don't pay your taxes, regardless of what any kind of a real asset that you own, the government can take it, right? So if you don't pay your uh, property taxes on your house, your local government can take your house and go to tax sale. So, so really, from that sense, that's why it's considered senior. But if you think about TIF incentive is really about 10 to 12% of the entire capital stack. That's kind of where, as a lender, as a commercial bank, you tend to understand your taxes are not going to be, from an expense perspective, the same as sort of your overall aggregate expenses on a multifamily project, for example, right? That's the side of it in which, yes, it is taxes, right? But the money does come in first.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And then how is this taxed? Is it taxed like a municipal bond where it's tax-free or do you have to pay taxes on this income?
0: It depends. Ultimately, it may depend on whether or not there is sort of a developer's effectiveness. Is the developer going to effectively guarantee the payment of increment bonds? What is the use of these tax increment financing proceeds? So, if a developer uses the proceeds for bricks and sticks, then the probably a lot of lawyers would say, look, it's an argument in which this is a private use, right? And, typically in those situations they may not see the same tax treatment as most other municipal bonds so it really just depends i think a lot of it is the devil's in the details but i would say in most cases the tif bonds that we acquire are do not have tax advantages we see them we will have to pay taxes on the income
1: gotcha and then my next question is going to be along the lines of inflation protection and what i'm trying to ask in this question hopefully it comes out right is if the tax rate today is 1% on property tax, inflation goes through the roof, COVID happens, we print a bunch of dollars, governments are in debt where they need to raise revenue. The place they typically go is property taxes. If that tax structure goes from a 10% to 11%, for example, do you have escalator causes in your TIFs that says you can look at the future cash flows as well, or is it only at the time that the TIF is written?
0: I think it kind of depends on how you structure the deal, right? So. I would say a sort of a prevailing real estate concept that assessed values increase year over year. I think it's for a good reason, right? I mean, the idea is you're holding a real asset and some real assets should to decrease as inflation increases. So depending on the way that we structure it on day one, there may be sort of, we may say, hey, we believe assessed value is going to increase by 1% or 2% on an annual basis. In those cases, right? We would typically capture those increases into our models and say, hey, we believe in year 15, the tax increment revenue amount is going to be significantly higher than is year one. So when we present value that calculation year 15 back to year one, we're probably going to use the higher value. But that's not always going to be possible or feasible simply because it really just kind of depends on the type of product, the area that we're currently in. So really the most conservative way to look at it is there is no assessed value increases. So from a developer's pro forma, that's probably really good, right? Because they can say, and realistically, it's probably not the case. It's just from a TIFF purchaser's perspective, that is probably the most conservative method of assessing it is assuming there is no assessed value increases in the future. But on the developer's, perspective, right? They want to see sort of assessed value increases because they've already modeled that out into their pro forma, right? In their pro forma, they're accounting for one and a half to two and a half percent year over year increases in expenses, maybe all the way down. And that includes property taxes. And So they want to be able to sort of monetize those increases as well and get a bigger check up front, right? There's kind of a lot of ways to really structure these deals. But sometimes the caveat that I think... uh, Folks don't always realize is that the municipality is also a party to this. So a lot of times, it really just depends on what the municipality is comfortable with. So at the end of the day, right? This is an incentive. This is a incentive provided by the municipal government. So you understand as you're trying to negotiate with an investor, you're negotiating with the municipality, and knowing that there is public dollars sort of being used to support project.
1: Yeah, this is super interesting. I bet you have some interesting Excel models too, because I was following you on the developer side, and then you brought in the municipality, and then I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is lost revenue for them. Essentially, this is an incentive structure. So they're going to want to make sure that we are applicable and agreeable on all angles too. So it's a tripod, basically.
0: Yeah. And the really good developers, I mean, can really see things from all these angles and understand that this isn't a transaction in which it's a zero-sum transaction. They see it as we need to be able to provide value and really contribute the asset that the municipality wants to do and the municipal partner in our project as well, and that they're giving us the funds so that we're able to take this project and take alive. And so that's the side of it that I think is important to kind of keep in mind is that it's not always a two-party transaction. It sometimes is a three-party transaction, and that it's just as important to understand what is the sort of the public value that's derived from as well and under understanding that. but it's not strict it's not a developer sort of value. it's public dollars investing in a project that the municipality thinks will generate future higher base assessed values, right? Yep. they want to be able to recoup their investment in the future.
1: Yeah, essentially if I'm following that correctly by putting that 200 unit apartment complex on this block, all of a sudden everything around you becomes more valuable. So even though I gave up an incentive here, all the property values around me went up and I'm collecting higher tax revenues from those.
0: Yeah, for sure. And also once the TIF expires, right, the taxes from that 200 unit apartment goes back to the municipality. So they're able to collect that as well. So it really is. It's meant to be a very powerful tool and it has been a very powerful tool, but it's just as important to sort of understand that you have to see things from not just... A developer's angle or investor's angle, knowing that they're sort of a public stakeholder as well.
1: What's the secondary market look like on these? So we've only talked really about you investing in new TIFF creations. Is there a secondary market on this? Do you recycle your capital by selling these on a secondary market? Talk us through that.
0: Yeah. So I would say unlike most investors, I mean, we are... Being a family office means that you get to take a very long view on any asset that you own. So we really haven't round tripped any the capital that we've already invested into the TIF, and sort of the idea is in Indiana TIF is 25 years, and so when we make an investment, let's say in 2020, we fully expect that we're going to own those bonds for the next 25 years. And part of it is we don't really want to sort of derive value from the, from sort of the flipping of it. And really, I mean, to answer your question, there really isn't a huge market for it either. So typically, the bonds that we purchase are developer-backed TIF bonds, right? They're not sort of those big, large TIF districts in which they're rated by a rating agency with an investment grade rating, or they're not a bond in which a municipality is supporting the TIF. In addition to the TIF revenues, they're also providing general property tax revenues in case if there's a shortfall. That's not what we're purchasing. We're essentially purchasing unrated, highly illiquid bonds that there really isn't a ton of secondary market activity. And so you know, that's kind of the side that you know, I think we see we're providing a significant amount of value by creating liquidity or providing liquidity in an environment where there really isn't a ton of liquidity. And so it really is. I mean, most of these transactions are, I would say, more primary market transactions. It's really more if it's before a developer. Is building the project or has built the project, we're really stepping in to monetize that TIFF stream.
1: Yeah. And I can see this being more applicable to developers as liquidity dries up in our system as we enter the back half of 2022 and going into 2023 here too.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's not a surprise that the Federal Reserve is very invested in fighting inflation. And really one of the best tools they have is to increase interest rates. And so as really as liquidity dries up, and it's not always even private liquidity from private investors, but it's also liquidity from sort of your traditional capital providers like banks, sort of as banks become tighter in their underwriting too, some of these loan to value assumptions may get tapped down significantly. And I think that's kind of when if you're a municipality looking to make sure a project happens, right, that's where TIFF becomes very powerful. There's really for any TIF to sort of be a TIF district to be created a TIF to be provided, there really has to be a but-for test, which is just a great way to say this project would not have happened except for TIF came in and provided the capital to build that project. And so that's sort of a very important distinction in that the projects that has TIF really wouldn't have happened without TIF. So as we're looking into a future with really tight liquidity I think TIP becomes extremely important in the next sort of the next development cycle. Got it last question
1: you mentioned these were developer backed. Have you ever had to foreclose or default on one of these bonds?
0: No we really haven't we have a few sort of a security features that that really ensure that we get our payment back. but historically with single site tiffs because it's not a very liquid instrument, There's just not a lot of market data to show sort of what the default risk or what the foreclosure risk is in a TIF transaction. But generally, that really hasn't happened. So ultimately, I mean, I wish I could say, hey, we have all this data to kind of show you these are the percentages in which defaults have happened in sort of single site or developer backed bonds. But there really isn't a lot of that data. And to me, that's probably a good sign. I think if the opposite were true, there were a lot of defaults, there were a lot of foreclosures, I think that would be very heavily reported on. But also, I mean, I think the way that we structure and the way that we invest in TIF, we are, as a group, I mean, we're definitely very risk off. We find a lot of ways to mitigate our risk from great risk to a sort of assessment risk, right? If assessed values somehow go, go down in the future. So we have a lot of mechanisms in which we can sort of defer that risk or sort of eliminate those risks completely. So from that perspective, we if really one of these projects do default, something's going very wrong. Led me to water there.
1: What are the mechanisms for how you protect yourself against assessment values going down?
0: Yeah, so one of the most common mechanisms, at least we use in Indiana has been, uh, it's, it's called a taxpayer agreement in which the developer-backed nature of it is the developers essentially agreeing to make a payment that covers your debt service, regardless of the assessed value goes up or down. So that's a very strong mechanism in which we're not really utilizing the developer's balance sheet. But I think if you think about it from a pure capital stack perspective, right, the only expense can't really get away with not paying is your property taxes. So we kind of see it as, as really sort of a, of all the expenses that you can choose not to pay, you have to pay your property taxes. And so Once the project is complete, I think our risk is significantly reduced. In the meantime, right, in the beginning of the project, the reason why our rates are essentially between a mortgage and a preferred return on equity is sort of this, we're taking on construction risk, we're taking on development risk. So I would say the biggest mechanism for us has been creating an agreement with the developer in which they're essentially agreeing to pay the taxes regardless of what their assessed values do. And it's also kind of an easy conversation that they can have with their lenders, right? Because that's ultimately what they're agreeing to in the pro forma as well. So it's not, it really shouldn't come to a shock if assessed values go up in the future simply because it's already been modeled in the pro forma. But that's sort of the side of it that, but that's how we're able to be risked is using a mechanism like a taxpayer agreement.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. And that's where I was wondering about the capital stack conversation that we were having is where you sat, because in my mind, this is still like the taxes. And if people want to say owning your home free and clear, you own it. No one can take it from you. Don't pay your taxes and somebody will come take that from right, you. So, right. <laughs> interesting stuff. Well, I want to shift this now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: Yeah. So, I probably don't read as much as I would like to. But generally, I think anything written by Malcolm Gladwell, I'm a huge fan of. So Outliers and David and Goliath are some of the recent ones. And uh, Michael Lewis. So I just finished reading Liar's Poker for maybe the fourth time. And Michael Lewis. And frankly, I've actually never read Moneyball, even though that's sort of the movie that everybody loves to talk about because it was made into a movie. But I've never read that. But I would say anything by Gladwell. I'm starting to get more into things written by Michael Lewis. Yeah, two
1: of our best storytellers of our times, I think. Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, is a fantastic tool to learn how to tell stories too. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things you do every day and the habits that you have. What are some of the things that you do every day?
0: That's a great question. I would say the one thing I do every day without fail, and it sounds a little bit cheesy, is before I leave the house, I make sure to tell my wife I love her. I kind of mentioned that in 10 years, right, what you do every day is going to be a reflection of who you are. I mean, in 10 years, I still want to be a great husband and a great partner. And so I think this is just something that I do to sort of remind myself that anything I do today and anything I do sort of professionally or personally, I'm really doing it for somebody else too. That somebody else is along on the journey with me. And so for me, I think that's just a very leveling mindset. I think it's good practice too, just in general, and I'm sure she appreciates it. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> <laughs> our,
1: our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Yeah, I, I was trying to think of something that's maybe not too cliche, but really, I'm at a loss. I would say, I think this is more just anecdotally than maybe or at least I've seen a pattern with this is that there really isn't anything good that happens after midnight. I try to, and some of it is, I think in a lot in our lives, I mean, just a lot of things can, can derail our lives and our careers by just making bad decisions. So I've sort of, this is sort of an adage that I had in college that I probably didn't follow as well. But I think as an adult in your 30s, How many reasons do I have to sort of really be out at midnight? But I think this is sort of a, the broader scope of it is really thinking about and understanding that your decisions really impact you and the others around you. And so it's probably not as eloquent as that, but I've sort of, as my wife likes to call it, I have just a supernatural ability to leave the scene before something really bad happens.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to brag, but on New Year's Eve this past year, I was home by nine o'clock. I typically agree with that statement. And it's funny, the older you get, the more your parents' advice when you were younger becomes more applicable. But you shouldn't find yourself in bad situations or where situations where bad things can happen. And that's what I try to control more than anything is, should I be involved in this situation? What are the chances that something bad is going to happen?
0: Right, right. I mean, I think it's applicable to sort of your personal life, but also in investing in real estate as well, right? I mean, I think there is sort of this leaving the party before things get bad kind of a mentality, I think in real estate, that the really smart investors and sort of the really disciplined operators know, as we kind of call it, know when to go play golf and know when to sort of put the hammer down. So
1: Love it. Our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life?
0: So I've been fortunate to have a lot of professional opportunities at a relatively young age. But I would say, I mean, the things I'm really most proud about is just my nonprofit involvement. I'm very uh, civically involved with my, engaged with my community. I sit on a couple of boards locally, and really, I, mean, I think these are the things that this is why I do what I do, right? Trying to make a positive impact to your community. I mean, I think being involved in nonprofits, volunteering, giving back your time, talent, treasure. I think that's something that I can always be proud of, right? And I think. It said on a few boards that their mission is to benefit children. That's something in which I think, how could you not be proud that you're a part of it and that you are sort of making, you're helping at least, or helping contribute to alleviate problems that kids have these days. And so, I mean, that's really what I'm proud of.
1: I love it, I love it. Well, our fifth and last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dinner or alive, who would it be and why?
0: I'm a big Formula One fan. I don't know if a lot of your listeners are Formula One fan, but I'm a huge Formula One fan. So, I mean, I would love to have ice cream with Hamilton. I'm pretty sure he's vegan. So, I mean, it might have to be vegan ice cream, but he's a seven-time world driving champion. And just a fantastic story of how he went from really a middle-class kid in England to Being the best at his sport in which money really matters, right? And so when you hear about stories about how much his parents sacrificed, but to get him to where he is today, I think it's really reminiscent of what my parents had to do as immigrants to help support our family. And so I think just being able to share a conversation with him, learn about his perspective and talk to somebody that is really the top of their game the greatest to ever do it, I think it would just be a really special moment. So I would say, yeah, if I had to pick anybody, it would be him.
1: Did you get into Formula One because of the Netflix series?
0: I did. I started watching that a couple years ago and I was like, man, this is not... never thought racing cars would be this gripping. And then so then I got my wife into it. And so every Sunday we watch Formula One. So when there's a race on, I'll say I'm sure there are bigger Formula One fans than we are, but the Japan Grand Prix was... This past weekend and it was on at AM. And so I woke my wife up at 1 AM and we watched the Japan Grand Prix. So <laughs> I don't know if that's something, but definitely very invested in it.
1: I love it. I don't know anything about Formula One. Obviously, they have done a tremendous job promoting the sport and taking different sport verticals, specifically NASCAR and others, but and moving them to Formula One. And I was watching something the other day. I'm like, how did Formula One become so popular? And that was the Underlying reason, they said, is so many people got hooked during the pandemic on the Netflix series, and now it's an entertaining sport. You're following this team and the driver and all this sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, interesting. Cool. Well, fantastic conversation, Joe. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you've got going on, learn about TIFF specifically more in depth, where's the best place we can point them?
0: Sure. So HagemanCapital.com, you can learn about our efforts in TIFF and also read our insights. We go into a lot of details about how TIFF is used, in what situations, sort of provide some ideas to the general development community. And then the Hagemangroup.com to learn more about what we're doing in real estate, agriculture, private equity. So I would say those are the best ways to kind of get in touch with us, and learn more about what we're doing.
1: Awesome. We're going to link those in the show notes in the show. Thanks for being on the show.
0: Matt, thank you so much. This is really fun.
1: Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the
0: world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.